The book starts with the observation that Americans are unhappy with their democracy. And it's not just Americans, as I can perhaps talk about a little more, but let me focus on Americans for now, because that's what the book focuses on. But there's been a really massive decline in the number of Americans who believe that government cares about people like them. Something like 50% fewer people will believe that now than believed it 70 years ago. And that's been replaced by a belief that the government works for elites now. And who the elites are depends on who who the speaker is. You hear people on the left, when they talk about the elites, they talk about the 1% or the plutocrats. People on the right will typically more talk about media or academics or, 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 or the swamp. But what unifies all these people is a belief that government somehow doesn't work for, uh, for the people in general. And I mentioned this is Americans, but of course, if you were to go to Europe, there's, there's similar tensions running around within the political system. There are, uh, within the EU, there are complaints about the government is being run out of, Bru out of Brussels by, uh, by, by Eurocrats or something like that. All of these things have been a fuel for what we call populism. And populism really is a view that democracy has been in some way captured by elites. And what the book does is it says first of all, that this problem is out there and we need to think about it. But it also suggests that the way we're thinking about it right now is not quite right. And the way we're thinking about it right now really boils down to one of two views. There's what I'll call the economic view, which is that people are frustrated because of economic change. They're blue collar workers, they've lost their jobs due to globalization or automation uh, for some reason, something like that. Or there's the cultural view, which is that people are frustrated because of immigration or globalization that's led to changes in their way of life, erosion of, of, of uh, traditional values and so forth. What both of these views do, however, is they, they take what the populists say as something of a facade. So when the populists say that they're frustrated because they've lost control of government, the, the discussion amongst public intellectuals starts off by saying, okay, we hear that, but what's the real reason that they're frustrated? There must be something below this. And they go down and they look for these other causes. What the book argues is, is that we ought to take the populist at face value. And when they say they're frustrated because they're losing control of government, maybe we ought to see if they are. And the big first part of the book is actually dedicated to showing that there's something to this, that in the United States and most other Western democracies over, let's say, the last 50 to 100 years, there's been a gradual evolution of government so that it has become decoupled or to some extent separated from popular control. And the book is trying to explain that, document that show that's happening, and then talk about what we can do about it. When thinking about the status of government, we should start by thinking about what the people think about the state of government. And one of the things that I think we, we just have to acknowledge is that the declining trust and confidence in government is not something that started really recently. It didn't start with the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Uh, it didn't start with European integration in 1990 or so. Uh, it goes way back at least to the 1950s, as far back as we can go with opinion polls. We've seen a gradual erosion of confidence in government and belief that government is working for the people, whatever exactly that, that means. And it's happened not just amongst uneducated or let's say blue collar workers. It's also happened amongst educated workers. Everybody's confidence in government has gone down. And what that tells us is that if we're trying to understand what's been happening in government that's making people feel like this, we need to look for something that really goes back far in time. 
What the book points out is that what's happened over, let's say, since the early 20th century, for about 100 years now, is that our governments have gradually transformed themselves into, into institutions that are driven by experts. So to oversimplify, but we can go back before this, before the early 20th, early 20th century, we can think of governments primarily being small. They didn't do very much and elected officials by Congress in the United States, by Parliament in, in other countries that were pretty closely connected to the people. What's, what started to change in the early 20th centuries is government started to transform into what legal scholars call the administrative state. And so governments created these huge agencies, which are now responsible for overseeing a lot of decisions. So in the United States, think of the Environmental Protection Agency or think of the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, these agencies now have become the locus of government decision making so that the elected bodies are, are essentially sideshows, uh, as well as courts have also risen in importance. The way this happened, the United States is a simple example. When Congress now wants to do something, suppose it wants to guarantee safe drinking water, it will pass a law, the Safe Drinking Water Act or something like that. And the act will say something like, we hereby charge the Environmental Protection Agency to promulgate rules that guarantee us to have safe drinking water. So Congress has affirmations or statements of values, but it turns over the actual governing process to these agencies. The key thing about these agencies is that they're populated by unelected uh, people. They're people who are experts, but they're not elected. All this was done for very good reasons. It made perfect sense, and it still makes perfect sense, to, uh, to create these agencies. We live in a very complex world, a very dynamic world. We need these agencies in there that can move quickly and can bring expert advice into play. But it's had an unintended side effect, which we're starting to now pay the price for. And the unintended side effect is that we've turned over a lot of government decisions to people that are not elected. And so the link now between the people, the people who, for who the, the, the decisions are supposed to be made, the link between the people and the actual rule makers is becoming very long and disconnected. So the question is, what, what are we gonna do about this, this, this situation where we're having this disconnect and we're having a lot of our citizens now feeling intensely frustrated about, about their democracy. They feel they don't, they don't own it. Right now in the, in the public discourse, there are, there are two views, and the book argues that neither of those are very good views. One view is that we should roll back the administrative state. Let's go back to the 19th century when we had limited government and we didn't have these administrative agencies, and there's direct popular control over elected officials who make the laws. I think that's really unrealistic, and it's, it would be foolish for us not to take advantage of all, the, of all the expertise and knowledge we have. The other view, which I find... Um, kind of scary is to, is to go all in on technocracy. So there, there is a strand of argument now in the public discourse which says, look, let's just, let's just turn over power to experts and let's, let's just do away with this democracy thing more or less in, entirely. The book argues that, that we shouldn't do either one of these. What we should instead do is keep experts in there, but find a way to inject more popular control. And in particular, the way we can do that is to hold more referendums. So we take a vote on, a, on an issue. What I suggest is that the best way we can think about doing referendums is to have advisory votes. So their recommendations to, to the Congress or, or to the parliament about, about what it wants to do. We know from surveys that people want to do this. Uh, I mentioned this point because one of the arguments against referendums is often that people don't want to actually vote on issues. Uh, I hear this all the time. You'll see this all the time when you read and listen to commentators. But the truth is from survey after survey after survey in the United States and essentially every other major democracy and many, many non-democracies is that 
uh, roughly speaking, two-thirds or more of the people in essentially every country say they would like, in fact, to vote on important national issues. Now, is this pie in the sky? Does this, does this, is this at all plausible? Well, I, unfortunately, I think for many Americans, it seems almost like a crazy idea, but I think the reason it does is a bit of American myopia. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an island, uh, island mentality. Within the United States, we, we actually vote on issues all the time at the state and local level. Literally every state uh, and, and uh, every voter in every state uh, votes occasionally on some issue, whether it's a ballot proposition, a high profile ballot proposition like in California, or it's a more mundane issue like funding for a school district or whether to allow a school district to issue bonds. Uh, Americans vote on issues all the time. This isn't, this isn't a, a foreign thing to the country. But interestingly enough, the United States has never held a vote at the national level on an issue. And that's really interesting because almost everybody else in the world now does this. In fact, we are one of only like three or four countries in the world now that has never held a vote on a, on a national issue. So a good chunk of the book is devoted to explaining, okay, what would happen if we did that? And it goes through some of the concerns that people have about voting on national issues, whether, whether voters are, are competent to make these decisions, um, what about interest groups and so forth. And it, and it reviews the scientific evidence for each of these we have a large amount of scientific evidence on all of these things now. And it, it, it basically, the, the, the main thrust of the scientific evidence is that, is that this can actually work fa fairly well. The key to this, of course, is to, is to ask people to vote on issues which are within their competence while leaving the technical issues to the experts. So you really want people to vote on broad issues implicating their values or uh, kind of general society defining issues and leave implementation details to experts. Just to take a simple example, one could imagine in the United States having an advisory vote, asking the people, do you think we should build a wall, as uh, Donald Trump suggests? Or do you think we should provide a path to citizenship for people who are in the country illegally currently? You can imagine having a national vote on that and asking the people what they want. The Congress would not be obligated to follow through, but I believe that having that vote would allow people to express their preferences and would increase the chance that Congress would actually move to bring their preferences into effect. If I had to boil it down to just two conclusions, there are two things that I, I would hope that the reader takes away from the book. Uh, first is that the, the U.S. was, uh, this is for, for American readers in particular, but the U.S. was 250 years ago the pioneer in democracy. The country showed the world that democracy could be done, but it's now become a laggard. Uh, it's in some respects, not, not just this issue of referendums, but in some other respects, it's, it's behind the curve uh, in terms of in terms of democracy, uh, and we need to get going and actually start consulting the people on important issues from time to time, like most other countries do, and it works. The other important point is that we have a problem uh, with the decline in public confidence in our democracy. It's something that we, it's been growing over time, and it's something that we, we need to really take a look at because it's breeding populism. Populism at some level is healthy, if it leads to calls for more responsiveness. We want government to be listening to the people. That's the whole idea. But it has a dark side as well. People are okay in democracy if they lose, as long as they thought they lost fair and square. They think they'll, I'll try again next time. But if they think the system is fundamentally rigged against them, then they're going to possibly start turning to autocratic leaders who want to tear down the system. The idea is if it's not going to be a, democ if it's not going to be a democratic system, 
why don't I just get somebody, why don't I have my, my autocrat instead of somebody else's autocrat? And we saw, we've seen some countries in other parts of the world, Latin America, unfortunately, ha has had a bad experience with some of these where the people went down the path where they became so frustrated with democracy that they turned to autocrats because they said it just doesn't work. I don't think we're at all close to that in the United States. I, I don't want to say that. But I do think that as people become increasingly frustrated, they will start to lose confidence in the system itself. We ought to be addressing these issues now when there's not a bright alarm, alarm flashing, uh, not treat them as some, somehow temper tantrums that people just are not willing to adapt to the modern world, but to understand there has actually been a, a genuine loss of control. And we actually have tools to fix it, like the referendum.